0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. I think a central premise that hackers have embraced is that code is law. Code more than law will determine the kinds of societies that we live in and whether they end up resembling democracies at all.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the Cyberwire's Law and Policy Podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co host, Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, I've got the story of how the FBI used open source intelligence to track down an alleged arsonist. Ben describes a facial recognition test that took place at the Rose Bowl. And later in the show, my conversation with Maureen Webb on her forthcoming book, Coding Democracy, How Hackers Are Disrupting Power, Surveillance, and Authoritarianism. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30 year plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. All right, Ben, uh, before we dig into our stories this week, uh, as is so often the case, moments after you and I uh, put a button on uh, our last show, there was some breaking news (laughs) that that updated one of the stories we had. We were talking uh, last time about IBM putting some of their facial uh, recognition technology on hold. What has happened since?
2: So one thing we mentioned on that episode is that IBM was ahead of the curve. They were the first company to basically put a moratorium on facial recognition technology at least you know the selling of that technology to law enforcement turns out that they were just the beginning of a trend so after we recorded our episode amazon and microsoft announced similar temporary bans on the use of facial recognition technology. That means that the market to sell facial recognition technology to law enforcement agencies across the country is much smaller than it was a week ago. I think we mentioned on the episode, upstart companies like Clearview AI might get a a larger market share. But one of the things we surmise in the episode when IBM took this action is that even though Amazon and Microsoft might have been able to get a larger market share, they might cave in to the social pressure given this political moment that we're in. Right. And they might want to do the thing that they believe is socially responsible. And that's what they did. So we now have, you know, three of the largest companies in the world, frankly, and, you know, probably an extremely large proportion of the market share for facial recognition technology announcing a one-year moratorium until, in the words of our president, we can figure out what the hell is going on.
1: It's always so eloquent. Mm -hmm. Um, So does this also shine a light on the issue that would catch the attention of policymakers to say, hey, if if these big companies are, are putting a pause on this, perhaps this needs our attention?
2: Absolutely. You know, IBM's original notification about this policy change was to members of Congress. And I think that that's not accidental. I think it's a signal from the tech companies, look, if we're willing to Sacrifice our bottom line potentially, because we realize this, that this technology is associated with, you know, systemic bias and uh, other negative externalities. Then it is incumbent upon Congress or state legislatures to make policy changes. So I think. It's a big wake-up call. You know, oftentimes we'll see the private sector lead in areas of technology policy. They're more well-situated. They have subject matter expertise that most members of Congress do not have. And, you know, they have to be a little quicker to respond to the dynamics of the market. And so I think, you know, this really might cause Congress to step back, consider, well, if we have Amazon, IBM, and Microsoft ceasing use of this technology, for a full year it, it might be worth it from our perspective to develop some standards and policies uh, right. so i think that's that could definitely be something we see going forward
1: yeah yeah certainly interesting developments well let's move on to our stories for this week uh, why don't you start things off for us ben
2: Sure. So uh, back a long time ago, in a month called January, seems like probably <laughs> ages ago, we had things that were called large sporting events that took place at large stadiums. <laughs> it was only several months ago. One of those events was the Rose Bowl, uh, a game between the Oregon Ducks and the Wisconsin Badgers. It took place in Pasadena, California, as it always does on New Year's Day. What was mm-hmm. different about this year's Rose Bowl is that in the Fan Fest section, a Company called Visibility. Uh, I think that's how it's pronounced. It's the word visibility without any of the vowels. (laughs) (laughs) Right. They had put up. Uh, surveillance cameras to test facial recognition software to be used for advertising purposes. So hmm. uh, the cameras were put on all of the attendees at this fan fest. It was approximately thirty thousand points of data that they were able to gather. The cameras would be put atop large digital advertisements, so people would look at the advertisements. The cameras are directly above those advertisements, and the cameras end up getting a really good look at those individuals. They can take pictures. Uh, you know, they have the full face in front of them and they are able to you know, use that image for facial recognition purposes. They want to figure out who's looking at these advertisements, what is the person's gender age? You know they're also going to check the faces that they observe against criminal databases. Is there anybody on a criminal watch list who's come to this event? Um, is this a person who has an outstanding warrant uh, available? So, this this is pretty extraordinary. I will note this hasn't been necessarily confirmed, but attendees who were interviewed as part of this article said that they did not see any warning in the FanFest area saying you are being recorded by visibility. You, you know, your face may be captured for facial recognition purposes, uh, et cetera, right.
1: et cetera. Help me understand here. I mean, I can see. I don't no matter what you think about it I can understand it I can see the capturing of faces for advertising purposes in other words if if this ad has your attention then you can presume that this might be something that this person is interested in so let's grab a shot of their face file it away and we know that this person has an interest in whatever it was they were watching the ad for right it's free market research Right, right. But I guess I'm having trouble following the extension of that to, hey, while we're at it, let's send this information to law enforcement.
2: It's a great question. I mean, the reason it's accessible to law enforcement is that nobody in that crowd has a reasonable expectation of privacy. So if law enforcement were to obtain this data, they would not need a warrant to search it against their criminal databases. Hmm. Simply by going out in such a public place, and revealing yourself at a Rose Bowl fan fest with 30,000 other people, you've lost your expectation of privacy. Now, that to me is sort of a bit of a legal fallacy in this situation. I might have a general idea that there are probably security cameras set up to make sure that if there's an incident at this fan fest, they're able to capture who did it, what happened. I'm probably not anticipating that there's a company without vowels in its name (laughs) <laughs> taking <laughs> hundreds of pictures and capturing my face, uh, using it to check against criminal databases. I mean, I just think mm. that's not something that's in the mind of a reasonable person who attends this fan fest. And so without putting out a warning, you know, I, I frankly think it's a little bit unfair to the attendees in terms of their right to privacy. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I think this is sort of an an extension of the surveillance state that I think goes beyond the pale.
1: Yeah. It's interesting to me because, you know, back in, in my broadcast days, I remember when we would, if we would be set up, you know, shooting a commercial or something like that at a at a store or a shop or or even at a sporting event, something like that, we would put up signage that said, attention, we're we're making a commercial here today. And, uh, you know, by passing through this area, you acknowledge that you may be captured and you may be in the movie, you know, that sort of thing. And if you you don't want to be, either avoid this area or let someone know or, or something like that. And... Well, I, I suppose we technically didn't have to do that in a public place, as you say, there's no expectation of privacy, just felt like the right thing to do, the, the sporting thing to do, if you will. Absolutely. <laughs> Good sportsmanship. Tell your attendees <laughs> that they're going to be spied on.
2: Yeah. Now, again, it's not confirmed that there were you know, no warnings here. Right. But you know, we talked about transparency as it relates to these subjects repeatedly the article and the person who wrote this article, it's from the publication 1.0, reach it out to both the Rose Bowl and the company, and asked about the use of the surveillance, and both of them declined comment. So, you know, they're being relatively cagey about it. The company doesn't have a large public profile. Um, According to LinkedIn data, it's only a 50-person company, but they have had contracts with some pretty large entities, Mexico City uh, being one of them, and they've used that for criminal surveillance circumstances. So, you know, it's an organization that's kind of below the the radar but relatively well established and you know they're expected to make or were expected to make up to 20 million dollars in profit during this calendar year so Hmm. um, it's a relatively prominent organization so i think the lack of a sign the lack of transparency means that attendees don't have any reasonable option to avoid the fan fest area I think the equitable thing to do would have been, you know, there has to be some sort of a gating set up for the fan fest in front of that gating, say there are advertisements here that are making use of facial recognition technology. If you do not wish to have your face exposed in that manner, then go get a hot dog and go to your seat and don't come in. And, you know, that way, at least a person would have fair warning and because Supposedly, that was not done in this case, even though the attendees don't really have any legal recourse if their face is matched up against a criminal database and, and they're arrested. You know, I think they they do have an ethical case to make against both the Rose Bowl and this company. So mm. it was definitely something that was sort of very eye-opening. And a lot of digital surveillance kind of reads like it's from 1984, yeah, <laughs> But this really illustrates that point acutely.
1: So given that we have this reality that you do not have an expectation of privacy in public places, and that is well established, what would a potential policy solution to something like this look like?
2: Uh, required disclosure would be the first step. That's sort of the easy way to do it. You know, something that said that at least in federal cases, if you're the federal government, a criminal defendant could seek to suppress evidence if they weren't given fair warning about the use of this technology. In the long term, the broader change is to revise this doctrine that when you go out in public, Whatever is captured on any form of surveillance, whether it's closed circuit television, uh, overhead surveillance, uh, that is fair game for law enforcement use. As we've talked about, made sense as a doctrine in the past because you know if the police catch you doing drugs, you don't really have an expectation of privacy if you're in the middle of the street. The police have limited resources. They're not able able to put a cop on every single block. Mm-hmm. If we have enough companies doing what this visibility company is doing, you know, and they put cameras literally everywhere, your face is going to be recognized in public really no matter where you go. And so you don't really, unless you are a literal shut-in and decide to, to stay in your house 24-7, which I guess we've all been doing for three months anyway. Um, <laughs> but that's the on. And
1: when we do go out, we wear masks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, hey, maybe uh, we've killed two birds with one stone there. Right, right.
2: But yeah, I mean, unless, you know, you're going to to live in your house, no matter what happens when you go outside, you are being watched and whatever happens can be used against you. And, you know, I, I just think that it's time for multiple branches of government, including the judiciary, to reconsider that doctrinal test, um, and I think the more we see stories like this, where it's on such a wide scale, I mean, talking about 30,000 people at a fan fest prior to the Rose Bowl, that's a lot of people. Um, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's probably more than past your average uh, street or store camera every single day in some of the biggest cities in our country. So we're talking about something on a, on a large scale. Um, yeah. And I think it's certainly a a, a cause for concern.
1: All right. Well, uh, <laughs> these stories just keep popping up, don't they? It's uh, They're interesting to follow.
2: Yeah, and it's it's so funny to talk about this after we talk about all of these companies that are reconsidering facial recognition software. I think right. one of the reasons they're reconsidering the use of it is because it's kind of grown so far out of out of our control. It's been propagated very quickly uh, across the country in the last few years.
1: All right. Interesting story. Uh, of course, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. My story this week, this comes from Seamus Hughes, who is deputy director of the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. And he posted a fascinating thread on Twitter that uh, we're going to follow along here. Then uh, of course, uh, the uh, enshrined in the First Amendment is the right of citizens to peacefully assemble. Absolutely. We've been seeing a lot of that, uh, lately with, uh, some of the, uh, the protests we've seen against police violence and so on. And, uh, you know, most of that has been peaceful, but there has been some violence. There has been, um, some uh, damage to private property. Uh, and of course, you know, within that right to peacefully assemble, that does not include arson. That does not include the setting on fire of uh, police cars. It certainly does not, yeah. And so what Seamus has highlighted here and has really provided a a set of cliff notes for is the FBI with an affidavit that they have submitted where they are alleging that a woman set fire to a couple of police cars during one of these protests. The woman is named Lori Elizabeth Blumenthal uh, who is alleged to have done this by the FBI. And what this really tracks is what we call OSINT in the, uh, in the security world. That stands for open source intelligence. And it's the case of the FBI using publicly available information to try to track down who this person was. And it's a fascinating story. It involves um, Etsy, tattoos, and massages. So there's something for everyone here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, it starts out with one of the uh, protests, which uh, was in Philadelphia. And the police force had a couple of their cars were set on fire. They were they were burned to the ground, uh, destroyed. And some photos came up of a woman who was uh, holding a, a flaming piece of wood next to one of the cars. And uh, so the FBI was able to get this photo, uh, which uh, I believe was on uh, Instagram. Yeah, it was yeah on that's where Instagram. it first showed up, yeah. So uh, to describe this photo, there's a woman, she's in the midst of uh, sort of hurling this uh, flaming piece of wood into a police car. And so white woman, uh, she's got a blue T-shirt on that has some text on it, uh, some blue jeans. Uh, she's wearing a mask. So the FBI used that as a starting point, And they went around and they gathered more photos from the event, from amateur photographers. They were able to find this woman in other photographs from the protests of the day and they were able to find that she was wearing a t-shirt that said keep the immigrants deport the racists A light blue t-shirt that had that text printed on the front of it so they went and started searching around for who sells that t-shirt and they found uh, someone on Etsy who sells the t-shirt. And then in the meantime, they also started searching for uh, who this uh, person could be. So in the comments of this Etsy account, they found a username. They were able to cross-reference that username with that same person using that same username on other accounts. Uh, through that, they got the name Lori Elizabeth. They were able to track that down to a LinkedIn profile in the Philadelphia area that also had the name Lori Elizabeth. This Lori Elizabeth worked for a company that provides uh, massage therapy services. The massage therapy company had some videos, some promotional videos on their website, which featured some of their massage therapists. And one of the people in those videos uh, had a tattoo on her arm, which matches a tattoo of the woman in the photos from the protest. So we're getting closer and closer here, Ben. <laughs>
2: yeah. Bring it, bring <laughs> us home, Dave. I mean, this is the the, the writers so, of Law and Order are just not even close to being as creative as this real life story. Not even in the same universe.
1: Just as an aside, there's um, in, in one of the the photos from the FBI's uh, submission here, they have a, a close up photo of the woman's tattoo from a photograph that was taken there during the day, and and it says a magnified and uh, cropped image, and I just imagine. Whenever I see something like this, I imagine you know, Captain Picard sitting on the bridge of the Enterprise saying, you know, on screen, magnify, yeah. you know, magnify. enhance, yeah. right? <laughs> uh. so, so they match this tattoo to the tattoos in the videos. They uh, subpoena the records from the Etsy store for who purchased this particular shirt. That leads them to, sure enough, a matching name. They get the shipping address of the woman who purchase the shirts uh, i suppose at that point they, they what do they take this to a judge and get a uh, a warrant for her arrest is that how it works that's what happened uh
2: and i presume that she's been arrested at this point although it doesn't say explicitly in this twitter thread yeah what do you make of all this ben it's extraordinary i mean that the story is just incredible The fact that all you had to begin with was a photograph, there's nothing particularly identifiable about this person if you look at a a photograph from a long distance. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a woman wearing a mask. You can see what color her shirt is, but that's about it. That they first went to Instagram and found a user who had taken the photo, got permission from that Instagram user to obtain that photo and cross-referenced it to other photos in the protest, were able from that to zoom in and, and find out two relatively simple mundane things, the message on her shirt and the tattoo that she had. And just through normal investigative open source police work, we were able, within a very short time period, i.e. a single day, basically, get a warrant for this person's arrest. The, the story mm-hmm. here is that we all have a very large digital footprint. Mm-hmm. It's larger than we can possibly imagine. Whether you are buying something on, on Etsy, what is it, Poshmark that she used? I would never heard of that. Do you know what that is?
1: Yeah, I think it's another online store.
2: Yeah, so that's where they cross-referenced her username from a comment section, uh, which led them to a LinkedIn profile, which led them to the website of the massage parlor where she works. Um, Mm -hmm. This is all information that is publicly available. Um, The only subpoena they had to obtain was from Etsy to get the the address uh, to where they shipped this, this shirt. And they were probably able to obtain this subpoena because they had reasonable suspicion that this was a criminal suspect based on all the open source information that they had obtained uh, from other sources. So yeah. there, there is a lesson in all of this besides you know, the fact that this is a, just an incredible uh, series of events and, and right. a fascinating, entertaining story. People need to realize how large their digital footprint is You know, it it builds up over time in a bunch of different places. And at some point, if you want to avoid a situation like this, even if you don't think you're going to be setting cars on fire, um, (laughs) but, but, you know, if you think you're going to be involved in maybe a politically contentious protest, you should think about minimizing your digital footprint. It's about going into LinkedIn and changing your privacy settings so that you're not available in a public search doing the same thing on sites like Etsy and and Poshmark. It's about not having anything identifiable on your organization's website that would identify an employee such as a tattoo. This can Mm -hmm. be a a very time-consuming process, but unless you don't do it, it means that this day and age, if you commit a crime in public, even if you've concealed yourself with a mask or, or something else, there's so much information out there that you are probably going to get caught eventually. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'd say it's pretty unlikely that it would be as fast as they, uh, the law enforcement was able to right. put together <laughs> in, in these circumstances. Right. Right. But but you're going to get caught. So it's just this is just the ultimate story about how large our digital footprint is.
1: Yeah, and to me, it's it's that no matter how careful you've been with these sorts of things, chances are you're not as anonymous as you think you are.
2: You certainly are not. I mean, part of it is that there's such a plethora of... Not only social media, but just you know, every website we do online shopping, we probably forget that we've used a lot of these services. Mm-hmm. So you know, if I decided I wanted to scrub my digital footprint tomorrow, I'd start with the social networks I use the most, like Facebook and Twitter, maybe LinkedIn. But would I get really granular and go down to that Jimmy John's profile I created so I could you know save up for a free sandwich? Probably not. Uh, <laughs> right, but they right. have information about me as well. Um, it's right. just you, you put together such a, a vast profile uh, of yourself without even really thinking about it or being conscious about it and it's just amazing to see somebody uh, in this case an fbi agent kind of put the pieces of the puzzle all together um, yeah. yeah it's 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 really extraordinary
1: really interesting story uh, we'll have a link to that uh, from Seamus Hughes again he's uh, the deputy director of the program on extremism at George Washington University uh, we'll have to try to get him on the show seems like interesting guy we'd probably like to talk to
2: absolutely yeah if you're listening to yeah. this. Please, please come on. Caveat, and to, <laughs> should we give a shout out to uh, our friend of the show who made us aware of this the story?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Our thanks to Liz Wharton. Uh, she's lawyer Liz on Twitter. She's been a guest on our show and quite often sends us interesting things that she thinks uh, might be interesting to us and our audience. And uh, in this case, that surely was the case. So thanks to Liz Wharton for sending this over to us.
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Liz.
1: Well, it's time to move on to our listener on the line. An email that we got, a bit of follow-up, I suppose, Um, and this comes from uh, a listener who is from New Zealand. Uh, and he says, a couple of questions based on the show that I just listened to. With reference to time limits, sunset, for provisions, weren't those enacted under the Patriot Act limited to short term? And they've just been extended each time it comes up with little discussion, until the last few months at least. This uh, listener goes on to write The UK has had a similar problem, even with a change of government. Those in opposition had complained about the provisions and then kept them anyway when they got into power. For qualified immunity, is it possible to carry Carry out a test case now to get a decision recorded that would then cover the use of stingrays. Uh, quite a few questions here, Ben. What, what do you think?
2: Yeah, first of all, great to have listeners from New Zealand, and <laughs> congratulations uh, to this listener on uh, his country eliminating the coronavirus in that country.
1: <laughs> yes, leading we, the charge. Yeah, I yeah. wish we were uh, <laughs> as lucky.
2: Uh, so great right. questions. Um, As it relates to sunset provisions for the Patriot Act, the original Patriot Act and every successive reauthorization did have a sunset provision in it. The listener is right that these were reauthorized without much thought the first few times the program was reauthorized. I think recently, especially after the Edward Snowden disclosures, there's been sort of more oversight, more skepticism about the surveillance state. And so Hmm. Patriot Act reauthorizations have been uh, a little bit more contentious. We saw it in 2015 um, that led to the passage of the USA Freedom Act. And again, uh, here this year, we are still without an extension of some provisions of the USA Patriot Act because Congress has yet to agree on uh, a reauthorization. But the listener is absolutely right that it was sort of pro forma after the act uh, first passed. I think the first reauthorization was in 2006 and there was some debate, but it was never in doubt that the bill would would be reauthorized. We were still in the shadow of 9-11 at that point. Mm-hmm. The point he makes about parties in opposition getting into power and not curbing surveillance practices or, or other pervasive government actions is, is a great one. We see this all the time. Opposition parties are always the ones that that rail against uh, whatever the government is doing. But once you obtain power and you, you understand the full breadth of your own tools... Um, You're going to want to use those tools. And there are a lot of career people and intelligence agencies who stay at those agencies regardless of, of which party is in power. And they may have the ear of the incoming administration and, and will try and convince them of the importance of some of these surveillance and national security tools. So that point is taken as well. Mm-hmm. In terms of carrying out a test case, uh, you could certainly see that happening. You know, For a test case, you do have to have a live case and controversy. So if you're the ACLU, you want to find a, an ideal plaintiff who actually was arrested and prosecuted on the basis of stingray technology and a case that you think you could win. Sometimes that's going to be a long nationwide search. You know, Maybe you'll try a bunch of different cases with a bunch of different plaintiffs with the hope that you'll win in a federal district court somewhere and eventually the case uh, will make it through the federal court system. So all great questions and uh, thank you for for writing in.
1: All right, and of course, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, We have a call-in number. It's 410-618-3720. You can call and leave your question there. You can also send us an audio file, and we will use that on the air. And of course, you can always write to us. It's caveat at cyberwire.com. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler. And I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Maureen Webb. She is the author of the book Coding Democracy, How Hackers Are Disrupting Power, Surveillance, and Authoritarianism. A really interesting conversation. Here's my talk with Maureen Webb.
0: You know, one thing that hackers are doing is they are trying to teach the rest of us really a new digital era civics. Many of us are unaware of the technical issues that are determining so much of how our societies work now. And I think a central premise that hackers have embraced is that code is law. Code more than law will determine the kinds of societies that we live in and whether they end up resembling democracies at all. Things like privacy and transparency, data self-determination, net neutrality, commons-based production and free software. These really are almost the new organizing principles of a digital era democracy, almost like the Enlightenment era principles of fraternity, liberty, and equality from the 18th century. But many of us who are concerned with democratic constitutionalism are are unaware of these issues. And this is the kind of experimentation that progressive hackers are undertaking. They are trying to build a new decentralized web that is neutral by design. They're trying to secure... Privacy and transparency for the ordinary user through a plethora of privacy tools and business models and through a plethora of leaking platforms, not just WikiLeaks, but there's been a real explosion of these uh, leaking platforms around the world that will hold governments and oligarchs accountable. Trying to defend free software, developing the GPL licenses that guarantee that free software remains free and also more technically complex experiments where they're looking at peer-to-peer technology and blockchain to really do a whole bunch of things that I think would fundamentally change our political economy if they come to fruition
1: I'm reminded of of some things I've heard scientists say when it when it comes to political discourse, which is that it comes to pass more often than not, I suppose, that they're not so good at explaining things, that that is not their core competency. Yes, we've had our explainers, we've had our Carl Sagan's, we've had our Bill Nye the Science Guys, we've, we have our you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson's, but those are sort of few and far between. And, and I wonder, does that apply to the hackers as well? How do they maximize their effectiveness in spreading the word about their efforts?
0: I think that's an excellent point. I think that's very much true. First of all, they're trying to overcome, you know, hacking as a word embraces a whole range of activities from the clearly dangerous and nihilistic to the very altruistic and everything in between. So they're fighting sort of a semantic battle and the same with free software the idea of free software as opposed to open software or closed software is fairly confusing until you uh, delve into it they also have the trouble of creating interfaces which are usable for the ordinary user and Mm -hmm. until they do that they really are not going to be able to make an impact because users simply are not geeky enough to take the time to try to utilize hacker experiments, unless there is a good user interface. But yeah, more than that, these are complex technical and social issues. And I think that the public service that I tried to provide as a, both as someone who understands the constitutional and social theory, but also has a foot in The world of the technology understands the civil liberties, someone who can tell their story in a compelling and accessible way. And what's really important for users is not necessarily becoming geeks themselves, but understanding what's at stake so that societies can shift their resources and their attention to the kinds of experiments that are going to update to upgrade our our democracies and ensure their survival into the next century
1: you know it strikes me that people who are in power like to keep that power and uh, i think of some of the traditional ways that the business of politics is done through lobbying with money and i i wonder the people who have the power how are they resisting these efforts from the hackers to, you know, these this, these new upstarts, uh, you know, to make their way into this established system.
0: Of course, those that have power hold on to it and those that challenge it are severely punished until they're able to somehow shift that power relationship. And so if you look at the history of social movements, you have martyrs, you have terrible costs for people that challenge the status quo at the beginning, and ultimately, a kind of consensus builds until the powerful have to concede. And I think, you know, at the dawning of the digital age, you're going to have very severe punishments for farmers who hack their tractors in order to be able to fix them, to get around the digital rights management code in their tractors, for security researchers that try to hack into black boxes of code to determine whether they're doing what they promised or whether they're just inserting malware uh, into ordinary users' computers, to the whistleblowers that hack into databases. We've seen that they're being severely punished right now. And one of the things that I deal with in the book is I talk about the value and the risks of transgressive acts. And how civil disobedience, which has a long tradition in American democracy, and other acts of resistance and defiance are very important to move society to new ways of thinking. And I think, you know, during this pandemic period where everything seems to be falling down around us, people might be more sensitive to that history, to that idea that. We have these moments of great social insight or great leaps forward in the way we organize our societies when there are experiments and ideas lying around and when social movements have been pushing power structures, then they can sometimes suddenly fall and the new order can come into being or or can be embraced. I think that it's really important that hackers are experimenting right now and they're experimenting at, you know, with some really mind-blowing things. But if their ideas or one of their experiments somehow takes hold or triggers emergence effects, it could change the whole political economy. It could change how, how work is valued, how value is traded and exchanged, whether these giant monopoly, digital monopolies continue to exist and suck the oxygen out of our local and working economies. So I think it's a fascinating time right now, and hackers are going to be a key catalyst in whatever happens.
1: From your perspective as a constitutional scholar, do you have concerns or are there things that you're tracking here, things that you learned that make you raise your eyebrows and say, this particular direction might not end well? History tells us that this could be a bumpy ride.
0: Oh, for sure. It's going to be a bumpy ride. (laughs) We've got like a century or two ahead of us. That's going to be a wild ride. I've got to acknowledge, of course, that there's a lot of truly, heinous hacking going on at the moment, both between states and among criminal elements. Um, I know that your program deals with a lot of the technical aspects. I'm sure you have many security researchers and consultants in your audience, um, Mm -hmm. uh, in your dedicated fan base. So they would know about this, you know, hackers can hack critical infrastructure. We all know the stereotype and the bad things that hackers can do. And also there's legitimate questions around, for example, the activities of an organization like WikiLeaks, the kind of leaking that is responsible or irresponsible in terms of protection individuals or allowing mm. institutions to have some ability to operate without complete transparency because complete transparency makes diplomacy, for example, difficult. There's a lot to be worked out in the next century. Uh, not only the technological advances, there will have to be technological innovations to make peer-to-peer and blockchain work in a way that serves society, but there also need to be theoretical innovations because I don't think anybody has fully theorized what a new political economy could be, an economy mm-hmm. that's not based on an industrial model, uh, the, an industrial-based mode of production. I, you know, And that's the other fascinating thing is that when you have code, code can be developed almost at zero cost. So what does that mean right. for society? Why are we allowing all of the value... And all of the exchange power to be captured by a few players when the code itself can be reproduced at zero cost. This is Mm -hmm. in some ways the end of the theory of capitalism.
1: All right, Ben, interesting conversation, huh? Yeah, I, I said this to you before we uh, started recording, but it's
2: it's really one of the most fascinating interviews I think we've done uh, on this podcast. I mean, she's she's very insightful, and I think she's really opened my mind to sort of the democratizing aspect of hacking. I think it was particularly interesting to listen to in this current geopolitical moment where we're seeing vast societal changes as the result of disruptive action. Um, What's happening now is large scale political protests, you know, sometimes they've turned violent, but Oftentimes they're they're not violent at all, but they are sort of creative destruction. In the words of, of Representative John Lewis, uh, you're making good trouble. And that's sort of the point she was making about uh, hackers. Some of the most profound, important change in our society is when people take action that may or may not be illegal, but that's uncomfortable for people in power. But it's nevertheless very important to maintain our democratic system. So, you know, I, I, I think this is certainly food for things thought. Uh, It's a different perspective on, uh, you know, people who have chose this as a hobby or a career path, that there really is a moral to hacking in certain circumstances uh, as it comes to democracy. So very much uh, appreciate the interview. And, you know, I think it's certainly food for thought. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Our thanks to Maureen Webb for joining us. Again, the book is titled Coding Democracy, How Hackers Are Disrupting Power, Surveillance and Authoritarianism. That is our show, and we want to thank all of you for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and zero trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpe. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.